Extraordinary Districts, a podcast about ordinary districts that get extraordinary results. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe all children deserve a high-quality education, and we're going to districts that have demonstrated that they have something to teach the field. With this season, we are beginning something new. In season one, we profiled three districts, and in season two, we profile three more. But this time, we're also convening panels of experts to talk through some of the lessons that educators, advocates, and policymakers can take away from the districts. In this episode, we have a terrific panel to talk through what we heard in the third district of season two, in which we profiled Valley Stream 30, New York. If you haven't listened to the episode, episode six, I hope you will, but as long as you're here, stick around, we'll guide you through. I got interested in Valley Stream 30 because of an analysis by Sean Reardon at Stanford University. He found that African-American students in Valley Stream 30 are performing 1.25 grade levels above the national average for all students. And when I went to Valley Stream 30, I found a district that is very thoughtful about how they approach reading instruction and the systems they have for supporting teachers and students. To talk about what I found, we have Jeffrey Howard, a Harvard-trained social psychologist who is founder of the Efficacy Institute. The Efficacy Institute is based on the idea that all kids can achieve if they are given the right support, and it has trained more than 50,000 teachers. I interviewed Dr. Howard for my book, Schools That Succeed, and I'm really happy he's been able to join us. My pleasure. Second, we have Josh Anasansel, who is Secondary Director of English Language Arts, Reading, and English as a New Language in Farmingdale Public Schools, which is on New York's Long Island. Josh wrote his doctoral dissertation on Valley Stream 30 and has spent quite a bit of time there. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And finally, we have Natalie Wexler, whose new book, The Knowledge Gap, is helping many educators and others understand that far too many of our children's educations are being shortchanged by weak and inadequate literacy curricula at the elementary level. Welcome, Natalie. Thanks. Happy to be here. To begin with, let's talk about Long Island a little, because in some ways, its schools are pretty typical, but there are some things that folks should know about to understand Valley Stream 30's context. First of all, New York State, like most states, relies very heavily on local property taxes for schools, and that leads to enormous inequities. I spent some time on EdBuild, which is a fantastic website I recommend that shows how much local and state dollars school districts have to spend. To illustrate the point about inequities, I'll just give three examples. New York City, where about 70% of students are considered economically disadvantaged, has a bit above $10,000 in local and state money per student to spend on schools. If you go just a tiny bit east from Queens to Valley Stream 30, the subject of today's conversation, about 40% of students are considered economically disadvantaged. It has a little more than $17,000 per student to spend. And north of Valley Stream is Cold Spring Harbor School District, where very few children are considered economically disadvantaged. It has almost $30,000 per student to spend, three times what New York City has. New York in general, but Long Island in particular, is a perfect example of inequitable school funding. Josh Anasansel, as a school administrator in New York, how do you see these inequities playing out? 
So to give you a sense of the geographic region that we're talking about, if I can invite you to think about about a road that connects three high schools, uh, each of those high schools is in a separate school district. And as we travel the, that road, um, there are two smaller school districts on either side of a much larger school district. The two smaller school districts have about 3,800 students each. Uh, the district uh, that you have to pass through to connect those two smaller districts has about 7,800 students in it. And if you look at the way those school districts are segregated, it's somewhat shocking. The two school districts on either side of the larger school district are predominantly white, and they have between 4 and 14% of their students who um, come from poverty. Uh, they have very small percentages of English language learners, and um, they are majority white. The school district in this center, uh, between those two school districts, um, has 87% of its students that come from economically disadvantaged homes. 30% of those students, 30% of those students were identified as being homeless in the 2017-2018 school year. About 40% of that district's students are identified as English language learners. And whereas 2% of the population is white, 97% of the population is either Latino or black. Latino students represent 72% of the district and black students represent 25% of the school district. I'd like to say somehow that that was an anomaly and somewhat uncharacteristic of the region. But as I was looking at the uh, public information on the New York State Education Department's website, and I looked at that region, if you move uh, further east, again, you'll see a couple of bundles of school district that have the same sort of disproportionality, not, along, not only along the lines of race and ethnicity, but also uh, along the lines of uh, economically disadvantaged um, students. So, I mean, the Pew Center a few years ago, I think, said that um, Long Island was incredibly diverse if you look at it from, you know, a national point of view. But when you get close, you're seeing a segregated school system next to another segregated school system next to another segregated. It, it, it called Long Island one of the most, uh, I think Nassau County was one of the most segregated counties in the country. And New York is known as a segregated state, and Nassau County is the epicenter of that segregation. Right. If you look at some of that, um, if you look at some of the data across uh, across Long Island, you'll look on average um, schools that are funded at lower rates, uh, the schools that typically educate more of the students from economically disadvantaged homes. The average school size is 800 as compared to school size of 600. Now, that's an average, um, but you have, um, again and again, you see the same picture. Uh, larger schools, uh, you see um, a funding difference between the, the richer schools and the poorer schools in, in, in Long Island is a $14,000 per year per pupil expenditure. You'll see they have more students that te more teachers, excuse me, that teach outside their area of certification. You'll see less experienced teachers teaching in these schools that educate economically disadvantaged students. Again, it's, it's not an anomaly. We can travel around and I can show you pockets of schools and clusters of twos and threes that replicate that again and again. So Jeff Howard, your, your life's work is in service to the idea that all kids can achieve if given the right supports. What, what do you think about when you hear about these kinds of inequities? Oh, they're, they're at the heart of, of our American culture. Um, they are 
a reality. They're a, a fact of, of everybody's existence. And in the places where educators overcome being on the short end of that, they act as if it doesn't matter. And they teach the kids to very high levels anyway. And the kids perform at very high levels. I mean, I've got this fantasy, uh, to, to stay with the New York theme here. Um, as I understand it, Brooklyn has become the hot place for young white professionals, okay? And, uh, you know, in the upper tiers of education and, and employment, they're all moving into Brooklyn and moving the indigenous population, which was largely black and Hispanic, out because they have the, the economic firepower to do that. Well, one fantasy that I have is that that, that, that school in the middle, the big school, 7,800 people in the district, becomes such a hothouse of highly effective education and kids meeting standards and enjoying themselves and having a great time and the teachers don't want to leave the, the, the school. People don't want to retire because it's too much. If you get that going in that building, my fantasy is, is that the kids from the more affluent outlying two districts start moving into the neighborhood to take over that school. I think that is entirely possible. My hope is that if that ever happens, that the educators in that building move someplace else and get the same process going elsewhere. But <clears throat> I think these economic disparities are an essential part of, of our problem, but they're also something of a symptom. And they're not the problem. We can overcome those economic disparities if we know how. So I have to just go back and say, that's also my fantasy. And I have this fantasy that that's going to happen to, to Valley Stream 30. So Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. So um, uh, I, I think it is happening a little bit in some of the schools I have written about in, in the past. Um, and I, I'm convinced that that's a possibility too, but I, we may be living in fantasy land. Well, yeah. I, I think that, well, I don't think it's so much of a fantasy, but I think what's important about those um, winning school districts is that those educators work with the teachers, work with the faculty, the community to put in place systems that transcend the idiosyncratic leadership, you know, that might exist with a certain superintendent or a certain principal. And I think that's really what's key is how do you mobilize a community? How do you mobilize a belief system around children so that you can create these systems of schools that really believe in children, um, but also can persevere when a principal leaves or a superintendent moves on. So, Josh, in your doctoral dissertation, I, I haven't read a lot of doctoral dissertations, but it, it struck me because you were so enthusiastic in your introduction to it. You said, this is a story that must be told, that people must know about, about Valley Stream 30. How did you come to think that? Yeah, well, and I appreciate you helping tell the story. Um, I think that school works very well for middle-class and affluent children. I don't see, uh, having had worked in public schools for uh, over 20 years, I don't see necessarily a problem in the majority of our public schools. And I do see a problem with schools that don't seem to be able to find muster success uh, with their with their children uh, who come from poverty. And 
what I wanted to do, I wanted to, looking at some of the work, actually, Karen, that, that looking at um, getting it done and looking at schools uh, that, um, that performed, uh, helped students achieve at high levels, despite some of the, the, the statistics that didn't support them. It, it, you know, it, when I thought about um, stories to tell and when I thought about looking at public education, what I wanted to do was I wanted to go out and find people who are getting it done. Because again, public education works just fine, but not when you look at students who come from poverty. So you found Valley Stream 30 um, and uh, you, were, you were really struck by it. Uh, you spent a fair amount of time there. When you listened to to the episode on Valley Stream 30? Did you think I got it right? What did I get wrong? Yeah, like- no, you know, I think you got so many things right. Well, first of all, it was a challenge for me to identify Valley Stream 30, and I was so glad to hear that uh, Sean Reardon uh, lo- identified the school uh, as well as a school that, that succeeded. I think that you got so many things right. I think there are so many systems in place um, that support, uh, support children. I, I think what I was struck by, um, and I didn't necessarily hear in, in the episode, uh, was how, um, students, uh, or rather the adults working with students really had no sense that their children came from poverty. And, um, they really, there was a, a such a pervasive belief that started with, uh, with the superintendent and worked its way through Every member of the community, um, there was such synchronicity around the strategic plan, but also around the belief in children. Um, so I don't think that can be overemphasized. You, you, you said that they, the educators in, in, in those schools didn't really think about or realize that they worked with children of poverty. I think that educators who get this right, especially with poor kids, reach a, a kind of state of grace where they come to a a firm conclusion that there ain't nothing wrong with these kids. These kids can learn at the highest levels. And once they get to that state, then they can organize themselves, mobilize themselves to overcome difficulties to actually teach the kids at a very high level. And they forget that the kids come from poor backgrounds. So Valley Stream 30's superintendent, Nicholas Sterling, says that part of the success of the district is its diversity. Although it has very few white kids, its student body is a wide mix of African-American students, Hispanic students, and quite a few new immigrants from Africa, the Caribbean, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. About 45% of the students uh, qualify for free and reduced lunch, which on a national level, that is not a high poverty district, but for Long Island, it is it is a fairly high concentration. But as he puts it, that's a, it's all a strength. Like every kid brings a set of experiences and background knowledge to school, but you can't, you know, he, he sort of cautions, you can't count on any single child having the requisite background knowledge needed for a particular lesson. Um, we're we're going to listen to what he, he has to say right now. And a kid has never been to a beach. It's a very different type of lesson that you're going to have to really provide. Now, uh, you know, with technology, you know, we can put kids in the beach now, <laughs> literally through our virtual learning, so forth, et cetera. And that helps to build their background knowledge in terms of what we want them to learn in terms of the, the curriculum itself. Throughout the district, I heard teachers and administrators talking about this issue of background knowledge necessary to learn the curriculum. 
Here's Principal John Singleton and Assistant Principal Yanni Chan with another example. And it's a little bit of a long clip, but it's honestly one of my favorite stories ever. One of the module books was on Jackie Robinson and the teacher's teaching it. And she's talking about Jackie Robinson, how important he was to not only baseball, but to America, to breaking the color barrier. The one of the first American heroes that was an African-American. But yet this... The students were like, but what is baseball? So mm -hmm. the whole story gets lost if the kids don't understand mm -hmm. what baseball is. Well, culturally, they had no okay. idea, like, who is the pitcher? Who is the catcher? Who, what do you mean batters up? And that's something that we take for granted. You think about that. You know, we're, we're Americans. We grew up in America. We're watching baseball all the time. Or if we don't like baseball, we at least know about it. Mm -hmm. We contacted the New York Mets, and the Mets sent over a boatload of um, paraphernalia, hats, flags. But it was like a, a live viewing of the Mets in our gym. We set up bleachers. We had a bandstand. We had hot dogs. Again, like I said, as far as being culturally responsive, we had um, halal. halal. We had halal. Halal hot dogs yeah. because a lot of our students were Muslim and they couldn't have regular hot dogs. So we literally set up a baseball experience in the gym and we explained what baseball was, explained what the pitcher did and how they scored and running the base and mm -hmm. catching so that they had that background knowledge and then we went back to teaching about Jackie Robinson. Natalie, this is the subject that is close to your heart. Your book, The Knowledge Gap, essentially argues that far too many schools are neglecting the job of making sure that children have sufficient background knowledge to become good readers. What did you think about when you heard about Valley Stream 30's approach? Well, it's obvious that they care deeply about the students that they're teaching, and they clearly went out of their way to remedy these gaps in background knowledge about the beach or about baseball. Um, but I think um, what's really needed in it, that they could be doing so much more. Um, and I think what's really needed is not just discovering by accident, maybe that a kid that doesn't know what baseball is, but systematically building the kind of knowledge that kids will need down the road when they get to high school, knowledge about history and geography. And you know, kids are, I would make a few points about, for example, baseball. I think kids are more likely to pick up knowledge of baseball by the time they get to high school, say, from the surrounding culture than they are to pick up things about the American Revolution or the Civil War or whatever. Um, but also, you know, it's it's lucky that that kid asked what what is baseball because I've been in classrooms where kids haven't asked. They've just sat there. I was in one second-grade classroom where the teacher was trying to build kids' knowledge, and he had chosen a pretty rigorous text for second graders about slavery. This was an all-African-American classroom, and it was about the differences between slavery in the North and the South and the economic consequences of slavery. But after about 20 minutes, the teacher's aide discovered kind of accidentally that the kids didn't know what slavery was. So, you know, kids don't always ask. Um, and, um, and, you know... Also, filling in gaps in, in background knowledge is one way to look at this, but I would prefer to look at it as we need to build kids' knowledge, period. Well, and I think they, you know, I think they would say they 
have a you know a history curriculum and a science curriculum and a um, and a, a very deep arts curriculum. Josh, I you were talking about their um, field trip program a little bit. Um, yeah, you know, in in this day and age, I think, uh, especially in the New York metro area, I think uh, f- more and more schools are uh, more reluctant to put kids put students on buses and send them out into the region to learn about from whatever institution may be available, whatever museum or, or activity. And I, I, I see fewer and fewer school districts doing that. Uh, that said, um, the state of the field trip is alive and well in Valley Stream District 30. Um, students um, just, uh, you know, they, and they, they celebrate that. So whether they're going to the museum, um, uh, of Chinese living in America, they go to the, muse- the National Museum of Native Americans, they go to the Museum of Natural History. Uh, students have a, a lot of experiences off campus, and I think that's that's critically important. But in addition to that, um, they also bring institutions on campus. So while I, while I was uh, in Valley Stream 30, um, I was impressed by how many activities students were engaged in. They had the circus come and work with students for a few weeks, develop a circus act, talk about life in the circus, perform that for the community. They partnered with Lincoln Center and, and jazz musicians and did a, a, like a music in residency on campus. Um, and they partnered with um, arts and education and the PTA. And they did... Um, you know, uh, robotics. They they had such success with that that they moved it off the PTA out of the PTA's responsibility and integrated that into the curriculum. They did eye games. Uh, they do have themes of that of let's move and physical education. So as they dive deep into these activities about health and wellness, or whether it is about uh, jazz music or the industry of music, they spend time not only. Um, participating in the part that's fun, like learning how to juggle, but then they also do a lot of reading and writing to develop that schema about the world uh, that Natalie's talking about. Yeah, I mean, if, if I could, I don't know if you want to jump into this, but I was basing my comments partly on what I know about what their ELA curriculum is from what you've told me, um, which is a, a very commonly used textbook called Journeys. And um, as part of my research for the book I wrote, I followed a couple of classrooms that were using that textbook. And I, I, I know it sounds like Valley, Valley Stream, like at most elementary schools, a large part of the day is spent on the ELA block on reading. And the Journeys textbook um, is organized by co- reading comprehension skills. There's a skill of the week. It those are skills uh, that are largely illusory because there are skills like finding the main idea or making inferences. And those are not skills that can be taught directly and applied generally, like riding a bike or playing tennis. Cognitive psychologists have found that reading comprehension is primarily dependent on how much background knowledge and vocabulary a reader has about the topic. So to make a long story short, the way to boost kids' reading comprehension is to immerse them in content, in in knowledge of the world, in history, science, the arts, literature, especially for kids who aren't likely to be picking up a lot of that kind of knowledge at home. Um, So journeys, for example, I remember um, one week when I was in the classroom, there was uh, 
Curious George Goes to School was the story for first graders. And in an effort to sort of be a little bit more topic-oriented, they the creators of Journeys had decided the theme or the topic here was school. And they had paired Curious George Goes to School, which was essentially just a picture story with a very little bit of, of uh, text, with a couple of paragraphs about what school was like in the olden days. Um, kids used to write on slates with chalk, that kind of thing. That was, you know, very superficial treatment of anything topical or having to do with history or, or nonfiction information. And the teacher in this classroom decided to skip the nonfiction passage because it was too hard for the kids to read. And, you know, why waste time on that? So I think this unfortunately is what happens in many, many school rooms, elementary classrooms across the country, is that we spend a lot of time on largely meaningless reading comprehension skills, trying to boost kids' reading comprehension and cutting out the very subjects or minimizing or marginalizing the very subjects that actually would build their knowledge and vocabulary and boost their reading comprehension. And I don't know how much time Valley Stream spends on social studies and science. I, I did... You, Karen, you found out that that was, uh, I think you got the number of minutes per week, 135 minutes a week, which is probably more than a lot of schools. And that works out, though, to about 27 minutes a day. And I don't know whether that's 27 minutes on social studies and 27 minutes on science. I suspect it's 27 minutes for both. So an average of 15 or so minutes for each. And that's not very much time. So... We don't have to have an argument on air here, but I would argue that you don't necessarily have to build, you don't have to put all your knowledge building into the ELA curriculum. Oh, I would agree. You know, and, and in fact, that's kind of not the most efficient way to do it. It's much more efficient to build background knowledge in science and in social studies and, and the arts, you know, and building the vocabulary through field trips and um, experiences is really very powerful. And you have to make a, you have to, to to make some decisions about what is the background knowledge, uh, from whose perspective are you gonna, you know, are you gonna teach in music? Are you gonna teach the history of classical music and its development over the over the centuries, or are you gonna show kids this terrific documentary I just saw? on HBO or Stars or someplace about Motown and how that was developed. And, and how do you decide in that sort of context teaching what's going to capture the kids' attention and really what's most important in terms of their background knowledge? If I could just, uh, that is a, a frequently raised question, and I totally, I totally understand it. And there, there are lots of different bodies of knowledge that could be covered. Yeah. Um, my point is we're not we're not building any kind any of, of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a documentary. I can put it in the curriculum. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say that the the background knowledge and the schema that the teachers and uh, administration are trying to help students develop uh, in Valley Stream 30 is really uh, expansive and it touches upon science concepts and history concepts, but also concepts around cultural identity and having students understand uh, who they are and who they are in relationship to history. They do so many celebrations of diversity and culture. And I see that as other um, 
experiences in which they could participate in, not only to develop their background knowledge, but then also to develop their sense of community. And I, there's such a strong sense of community. And the way that community is built through those common experiences in which they participate, I think that that was strong. I, I was going to say, I think we can all agree that Valley Stream 30 is approaching reading instruction with a pretty high level of sophistication. Are we are we all agreed on that? Maybe. Um, I I really don't know enough right. because I, I know all I know is that they're using journeys as their reading textbook, and I find it to be really lacking. Now maybe they're supplementing it with some other things, but oh, it, just yeah. based on journeys alone, I would say that's not a very sophisticated approach. It's certainly to reading comprehension. Okay, so we're not all on agreement, but that's not all I saw. <laughs> Um, I saw system upon system upon system that had as its purpose ensuring that nothing about Valley Stream should depend solely on one person. To your point, Josh, um, the knowledge and expertise of teachers and administrators is being developed all the time. So I'm, I feel very confident that if they are lacking in something, they will notice it. Like they are looking at data all the time. They're looking at what they, um, where their kids are and where their kids need to go. And if there is a lack, they will think about how to fill it. Um, at least that's what, how, what I saw. One system that I thought was particularly interesting was that every administrator oversees several district-wide areas. And part of the reason for that is it's small, It's it, but it, they made a... Um, they kind of made a, uh, a positive virtue out of a necessity in in a lot of ways. Here's John Singleton, principal of John of Clearstream Elementary, and then Chris Colorasi, who was assistant principal of Shaw Avenue Elementary and is now principal. Um, and they're talking about the different kinds of roles that they play. I'm the fifth grade advisor, and I'm also the social studies advisor. And I also work with the physical education department. And that changes every two years. So last year I was with, I believe, second grade, and then I was also the enrichment person. So that way everyone gets a different idea or a different taste of all the different services that's, that the district has. So this year, for instance, I'm with first grade. Mm -hmm. Who are you with? Kindergarten. Kindergarten. Yeah. Um, and then we also have a department that we oversee. Uh, so again, when I was brought on, um, I was asked to oversee the science, which absolutely was not innate, was something that I had to work on and build. And Superintendent Sterling said that this demonstrated that to children and to teachers that leaders were willing to learn new things. Demonstrate to your colleagues, your staff, that you're going to take a risk and that you're going to learn alongside them. And so that's leadership. So, Jeff, you talk a lot about the way schools are structured to support student learning, adult learning. What did you think about when you heard about the Valley Stream systems? Uh, as I listened to your, your, your podcast, which, by the way, had me on the edge of my seat, I didn't have to go get a second cup of coffee, just really stay with it. It's a terrific podcast. But for me, it was missing, call it a chapter one. How did this come about? What I heard in the podcast was the story of a mobilized group of adults who were working to, to get something done, who were solving problems, who 
understood their kids' issues and had a response to everything that they understood. You know, uh, the, the, the question, Natalie, of the, um, the particular reading program. In my experience, and I think we talked about this a little earlier, um, highly mobilized adults who have a poor reading program will get better results than immobilized adults who have the best reading program in the country. So for me, chapter one is, how did this mobilization occur? Did it happen before Superintendent Sterling joined the group and he came in and kept it going? Or was he the source of it? If he was the source, how did he mobilize the principals and leadership teams in the building? What did he do to create the sense that not only did two things he had to create, it seems to me. He had to create a belief that these kids could do it. And he had to get people to salute the flag of academic outcomes that reflected the real capabilities of the kids. Concrete objectives, holding people accountable to those objectives. That if you can get adults on a program like that, they're, they're, they're shooting for a star, and they have a solid belief that it can be accomplished, that the kids can do it, and that they, the adults, can do what's necessary. That's the foundation of mobilization. Then they start solving problems. They figure out what the kids' deficits are. They think about what curriculum is gonna be the best curriculum to put in place. What instructional practices do we need for these kids? What context issues do we have to address that some of these kids coming from Africa or from the Caribbean or wherever they're coming from don't have yet? That regular, regular, wrong word, professional educators can solve all the problems of the populations that they're working with if they're first mobilized. And that adults who are not mobilized can put programs in place, but they're not really gonna solve the problems. Well, I can add to that, that Dr. Sterling took over a school district that had, um, that was successful. Um, I think that what happened under his leadership and it, what happened in his tenure is that the school district, the demographics of the school district changed. Um, immensely, um, more diverse, uh, more, um, more students coming from poverty. And he let, was, let me just say it's a white flight district. Thank you. <laughs> a, a white flight district. Yeah, 20 and, years ago, 40% of the students were white today, about 5%. So it, they're, they're about to, you know, uh, if they don't hold on to their white students, they're about to say goodbye to their last white students. So, and what I want to do is I want to, because of the work of Dr. Sterling and the work of his team, he made it not so much about him, meaning the team is mobilized, there is a strong belief system, and it transcends central office, it transcends each of the elementary schools and each of the school building leaders. There is a deep-seated belief in students and in their ability um, to achieve at high levels. To your point earlier around which reading system, uh, which reading program they have, I was a bit surprised when I first met the teachers that they had a, uh, a, uh, adapted. They were proud to say they didn't adopt, they adapted because they took the New York State modules and they adapted them. I was surprised about that. I was surprised to hear later that they adopted Journeys as a program. And to your point, Jeff, 
I don't think it matters necessarily in that context what the specific program was because there is such a mobilization of all of the service providers and all the teachers in the community from the administrators who work with teachers to identify gaps and identify needs, who develop programs, who work with um, service providers in a very integrated way that makes service delivery coherent for children. There's a lot of support for children, and I think that is more important than whatever specific program they may have in place. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I completely believe that mobilization and belief and strong leadership are important. But I have talked to many teachers and I've seen in schools that, uh, you know, a lot does actually depend, uh, let's not call it a program, but on what you're trying to teach. And you could have a deeply committed principle, but if that principle is touring, going around classrooms, wanting to see the skill of the week on the board, then that's what teachers will focus on. And that is often not very engaging for students. And it also can interfere. Pe teachers, I think a lot of teachers want high expectations. They want to believe in their students. But when they're asking their students to do things that are difficult or impossible for them because they're very abstract, like asking, a f asking first graders to remember whether fantasy is a subgenre of fiction or nonfiction, or, you know, I have seen teachers engaged in those things. And I think even the most deeply committed teacher and the strongest leader, if, if what you're trying to get kids to do is something they're either not interested in or can't do because they don't, they're not equipped to do it because you haven't given that, them the basis of what they need to meet your high expectations, it's not going to work. Which is very often the case. I agree with that completely. See, I think what that leader does is he or she doesn't come in with a, a skill of the week that that's not what they're organizing but or mobilizing around. the program around. may come in, maybe specifying yeah, that. It doesn't come in with a program of the week. What the, what the, what the effective educational leader comes in with is a, a belief that these kids can achieve academic proficiency or better. These kids, wherever they're coming from, that if we organize ourselves correctly and deal with the issues, we can get them to academic proficiency or higher and then they adopt programs to try to make that happen. And if the programs don't work, they recognize it. And they get rid of that program and they bring in something else. But what the leader provides is belief and, and academic objectives and gets people mobilized around that. Then the educators figure out what's the program? What's the approach? How do we like this one? Is this working? Is there something better? It turns out that educators there are educators in every building I've ever been in. Sometimes it's a little small cadre in a, in, a, in a chronically underperforming school, but there's educators in every building who are creative. They're professional educators. They remember what they learned in school. They read up in the professional journals now, and they have a good idea of what needs to happen in the building. And if that leader empowers them by setting objectives and holding people accountable, then that's what takes over, and they figure out What's the best approach? Well, that that may well be true that they'll figure it out what the best approach is, but I guess I do question the selection of this particular reading program, which I, I don't see how you can really... I mean, they, they may be accomplishing some objectives. I think I, I, what I'm saying is there's so much more they could be doing if, they were te if the content of what they were teaching was different. I, I, I'm not... 
disagreeing with that, but I don't think it starts with the selection of what we regard as the best reading program. I think it starts with a belief that the kids can do it and an obligation on our part to get them to high standards of proficiency. And then they pick the best reading program. On your advice, uh, on Josh's advice, on somebody's advice, they will find their way to the one that works. What's interesting about uh, the teachers and how they talked about their work, they felt empowered by school leadership and by district leadership. And every curriculum decision that seemed to be made was made with the support and with the counsel of the teachers. I think in there is a, a real accountability system so that you give teachers some latitude to do some research, to participate in, in the process of selecting some program, and then they get behind it. And the fact that they get behind the program and that they are mobilized to engage children, um, I think they'll then they see where the problems are. So when you have a school community committed to bringing all students up to high levels of academic achievement, they'll have their finger on the pulse when students are unengaged or when students are not making progress. So I can only imagine um, that what they're doing with journeys in this sense is they are wrapping that inside their belief system around students and their robust response to intervention um, system that they have in place where they keep a real careful, um, they keep their finger on the pulse of, a, of where a child is and where, where the goals are for that child and how the child's making progress with whatever intervention is put place. And I hope we can talk a little bit more about that moving forward. Um, but, but, the, but that's the most important piece that teachers are empowered to teach students to high levels and they, they, they have, they're accountable for that because they help select and choose that. So they're behind that. Well, I, 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 I want to kind of support what Natalie's saying, but also what, what you guys are saying as well. What I've seen in schools is that even schools with really a, a lot of program, right? So uh, uh, I was in Steubenville for the last se for the first season of uh, extraordinary districts. They are a success for all district, right? So they are full program success for all. And as I talked with them, they think success for all has helped them be successful, but they will say ultimately it's not really about a program. It's not really about the curriculum. It's about how we respond to the curriculum. It's how we implement the curriculum. It's how we think about it. It's how we look at the data and think, you know, there's going to be something wrong with every program. And one of the things that the teacher who talked about journeys um, in, in uh, Valley Stream said, a good teacher can make it work. She didn't say it's a great program. Mm -hmm. She's... She, it's not really about the program. It's about what the teacher brings together with the program. Now, you want to say you're better off with a really good program, a really high-quality program. I, you know, you're absolutely Agreed. right. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I would also say that, and I'm not a teacher. I'm based, basing what I'm saying here partly on evidence from cognitive science, but also on the teachers I've talked to and the schools I've been in and witnessed. But I've talked to teachers who have said, no matter how good a teacher you are, no matter how much you believe, there's only so far you can go with a skills-focused, comprehension skills-focused literacy program. Every teacher will hit a wall with that and because there's no content. If they're committed and accountable, they'll figure that out quickly and they'll make the shift. 
to something that works better. If they have the freedom to do that. Well, that, well that, that's part of what makes a successful school. Um, and a district will give them the freedom, will give faculty the freedom to make decisions about what curriculum they use. If they're using something that doesn't work year after year after year, it's because they never really believed that these kids could do it, and, and there's been no real commitment or accountability to getting results. Right. If you're not seeing improvements over time, there's something wrong with what the adults are doing. And I'm, I'm going to appropriate your word, mobilized, a mobilized district will recognize that and think, huh, what else do we need to They're do? They're very unfaithful. A mobilized district is very unfaithful. To programs. To programs yeah. and curricula to anything. Program if they don't think it's working, they'll drop it. They'll drop if it. If I could just add one more yeah. thing, and I don't want to sure. hijack this discussion, <laughs> but I, I know I have a different perspective. Um, you know, I think one key issue is how you determine whether something is working. I mean, a lot of schools pride themselves on being data-driven. But we, what is that data actually measuring? When it comes to comprehension, the measures are are illusory because you're giving kids the same kind of comprehension tests that, that they'll find on a standardized reading test. You're not actually assessing whether they've learned anything substantive. So you're not giving us any way out. I know. I'm sorry. Um, there, has to be, there has to be a way out. We have to agree on something that we're measuring, some proficiency standard. Well, what I would suggest is a different way of going about assessing progress. I know this is radical, but I would say if you've taught kids about you know, the human digestive system or Greek mythology – that you assess how much they've learned about the human digestive system or Greek mythology rather than trying to assess some abstract comprehension skills that are largely meaningless. Okay, but we have to settle on something that we're assessing, and then we have to develop curricula that can get to it, and we have to leave it to educators to find the curriculum that allows them to get to that standard, holding everybody accountable for doing so. That's a, f a formula for mobilization. Right. All, all I'm saying is that if what you are assessing isn't that meaningful, then change what, is, what you're assessing. Well, make would, it meaningful. I, I, I totally agree. I haven't seen that happening, and, and I don't know. Maybe well, it's happening it, in Valley Stream. Well, what's interesting about Valley Stream is they use a variety of assessments, and they really work. They think like a researcher, and they work to triangulate their data. But I've seen them go way beyond uh, the triangle. Uh, they look at New York State uh, ELA and math assessments. They look at um, they look at the NWEA uh, assessments, Northwest Education um, Association. Educational. Uh, Education yeah. Association, yeah, the MAP assessments, excuse me. Um, and they look at l local assessment. They use AmesWeb. They use, they use um, Achieve 3000. But I, for any listener out there, I wouldn't write down any of those names because none of those programs or none of those assessments necessarily mean anything if you don't have a belief system behind behind those assessments. Now, Natalie, to your point, I'd love to see what could happen and how far um, Valley Stream 30 could climb if they would have a, a, a knowledge-focused curriculum to help them build schema and background. What I, what I witnessed when I was there is that they're doing that. They're doing that in other ways and through the other additional programs uh, that, that, I, that, that I spoke about. But maybe that's another opportunity for them. Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying it sounds like they are doing a lot. I just, and I haven't been there, but I have a sense they could do even more. I think we'd all agree with that. <laughs> yeah. I suspect they would agree with that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
wouldn't be that hard. <laughs> um, so, so the kinds of structures that that they have in place, uh, Josh, you you work you've worked in a number of districts on Long Island. Do you see those in place elsewhere on Long Island? One of the systems that I was most impressed with, most impressed with, was the RTI, um, the response to intervention. This was a mandate put on uh, school systems uh, by New York State in 2010. But the degree to which they progress monitor their children and how regularly they do it is remarkable. And the way that they use the RTI system in tandem with their um, intervention and enrichment period is remarkable. Um, so twice a year, they do a macro view of the data. They take a look at how schools do, how grade levels do, and then they think about the implications for curriculum redesign. Then they dive deeper monthly to look at how individual students are doing. And I sat in on some of those conversations. They looked different than the conversations that I've seen in other places by virtue of how they triangulated data, the way that, and they looked at normed uh, assessments and they also, they, they took in, they thought of anecdotal assessments, they looked at classroom assessments. And then um, the note taking and the record keeping they did behind that and the way that they made commitments to come back in two weeks or come back in four weeks. Now, those interventions uh, and those enrichments are delivered during the, the, uh, the IE period, intervention and enrichment. And those are two periods a day for some school, in some schools, for some grades, they're um, consecutive periods. And for other, for other students, they are two different periods in, within the school day. And those are the only two periods a day where children are allowed or permitted to go out and do any number of the range of things that they do that excite them and interest them and connect them to school, whether it's they're participating in orchestra or band, or maybe they're, they're going to their um, English as a new language uh, mandated support, or they're going to AIS reading or math, um, or they're going to an enrichment. Uh, and then while the children are outside the classroom, teachers have an opportunity to work in smaller groups uh, and one-on-one with those children who need enrichment and support. So, th- so those children get it outside the room and they get it inside the room. Then you have enrichment teachers and librarians and other service providers that on a very regular schedule will push in further lowering the student-teacher uh, rate ratio and helping students develop really close relationships with their teachers. Some of these children will work on projects for months at a time during this period. Sometimes they'll get a chance to do some independent reading. Sometimes they'll do some uh, independent study. Uh, it's it, The way the IE periods work in relationship to the progress monitoring is in itself something I've never witnessed before. So one of the things that has occurred to me over and over as I go to really highly functional schools and districts is if you sort of plopped that system into your ordinary dysfunctional system, it would be overwhelming. The, you almost can't even imagine it because there's so, so many moving parts that have to in, work together. But for them, all these systems working together enables more work. It doesn't create more work. And they'll accept it without 
saying you're just putting too much work on us. Well, because they've developed these systems yeah. in part. Um, it, it wasn't something imposed, but something that over time developed. And so now it's like a, it's like clockwork. It's like, you know, uh, one principal, uh, Deb Gustafson, who I've written about a fair amount, she calls it the flywheel. Once you, It takes a lot of effort to get that flywheel moving. But once it's moving, you know, it, it, it just takes a tiny bit of, uh, of, of effort at that point. And that's part of what really struck me about Valley Stream 30. They've got so many systems now working that it's almost impossible to know that that chapter one that you would have liked, and I'm feeling like I should have done more on that one. <laughs> Next time. Or go back. But behind every one of those systems is a belief, and a belief that what they're doing, what teachers are doing really matters, and a belief in children and... Um, when I, one of those, um, one of those uh, progress monitoring meetings, I sat and I talked to a teacher afterwards. And in some schools, uh, there can be some tension between the administration and teachers. And I'm not going to suppose that there isn't any. I think there's a certain tension in leadership, a creative tension if you're doing it right. But the teacher, teacher said to me, you know, I've looked at this data. I know my principals looked at this data. And then we get to go and sit down and unpack it together to think about what are those best next steps for these individual students. So there's really a partnership there that I saw between the classroom teacher and the building administration, not in an I gotcha. It's more of, hey, what can we do to support this child more? Um, and, then the, and then to help... Um, schedule that child for those interventions, which is, you know, in a large part, the role of the school administrator to those ebbs and flows of students as they're moving in and out of those, those supports. I want to add one thing to that model. And it's something that armies and athletic teams and successful organizations of all kinds understand. We sometimes do a, uh, <clears throat> in my work, we do a chart, big flip chart. And you start asking them, what are the programs? And as you know, a lot of these, these schools and districts and clusters of underperforming schools are programmed up. They've got everything from the last five years that they've bought it in, okay? So we just put an X for each one of the programs on this big flip chart, and you've got Xs all over the page. And you ask people, how are these related? And they can't really tell you because very often they're not. It's what somebody said was the best curriculum, the best instructional strategy, the best cultural alignment program. Um, and then we put on that same page a target, big target, you know, the standard sort of in the, you know, the middle thing and then the rings around. And we say, now how do you think about organizing this? And the answer, of course, is you add lines on that chart going to the target. And all the programs that are within the two lines are, are relevant to achieving something. And the other programs that are outside those two lines, they themselves believe are not really relevant to getting results. So what I'd add, Josh, to your, to your model is, it's not just beliefs. There has to be a target, something that they know they're shooting for that allows them to discriminate between what's working for them and what's not. And they themselves will become committed to it, and they'll overcome the sense of complexity uh, to, because they understand how all of it works together. They can talk their way through an understanding of that. But there has to be a clear target. One more thing. 
And I would argue that that's the biggest missing thing in American education. There is this powerful resistance to having concrete targets for achieving what we're trying to achieve. Uh, and without those targets, what you get is program proliferation. Uh, yeah, in fact, the, the second district that I went to this season, Seaford, uh, Delaware, when the superintendent came in, he said, uh, he looked around and he said, we were program rich and instructionally poor. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he, he, he trimmed a lot of programs. The programs is not where all the real work happens. The programs are tools to help you do the real work. Right. They're hammers. They're not you know, building plans. <laughs> yes. That's that's maybe not the perfect analogy, but um, so so one of the things I wanted to ask you, Jeff, though, is you're working with the state of Massachusetts, which has enormous gaps in among demographic groups. Um, it is the top performing uh, state in the nation, with but very it, stubborn gaps. With very stubborn gaps. Are there lessons that a state like Massachusetts can learn from a little itty-bitty district like Valley Stream? Yeah, and needs to. I served on the State Board of Education for, you know, of elementary and secondary education. And I was on a personal mission to get the state, to get the Department of Education that reported to us as a board, to really address the gaps. And I will tell you, I feel that, that I was, we were very unsuccessful at that. And as a result, now I, I left that board in, I think, I joined in 2011, and I was on the board for three years, and I left a number of years ago. And they've made, they made no progress while I was there, and they've made no progress since in closing the gaps. And everybody talks about it, but it hasn't been done. One of the things I tried to get the board to do, and I was unsuccessful at this, was to set objectives. By how much do we intend to decrease the gap between black students and white students, Hispanic students and white students, white students and Asian students? Because, by the way, there is a huge gap between white students and Asian students in the state of Massachusetts and I suspect in the country. And, I, and people would not set concrete objectives what was for closing the, the gap. What was the, what was the reluctance? Everything we're doing is going to result in closing the gaps. So magical thinking. It was, it was absolutely magical <laughs> thinking, and they would not, you couldn't shake people out of it even after years of not getting better results. And I hope somebody from Massachusetts hears this and tells me that I'm, 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 I'm behind the scenes now, that, I'm, I'm, that, that I'm, I'm late in understanding that they have done these things and they've closed the gaps, but I don't expect I'm going to hear that because I don't think we've been successful at it. If I could interject, I... I, I don't know, have much firsthand knowledge of Massachusetts, and I would defer to you. But I did, in the course of doing research for my book, talk to some people in Boston about the, the achievement gap in Massachusetts. And basically what they told me was Noni Lasoa, well, somebody working with Noni Lasoa at the Harvard uh, Graduate School of Education, and then the person who at the time was in charge of early elementary literacy instruction for the Boston public school system. And basically what they told me was, at the early elementary level, the teachers were focusing on comprehension skills. I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, rather than building kids' knowledge. And 
it, the thing about building knowledge is it's a gradual cumulative process. And the earlier you start, the easier it is to narrow those gaps because the longer you let them exist, the wider they become. And that what was really needed uh, in Massachusetts and in Boston was um, a content-focused, knowledge-building, early elementary curriculum that, that the uh, – the standards, the frameworks were not enough, didn't really reach to those early grade levels. And if that's self-evident, why haven't they done it? Well, what I was told, and this is a few years ago now, is that they were working on it, Yeah, and in Boston at least. And I suspect they still are. And if something doesn't change in five years, they're still going to be working on it. Some, the mobilization to, to change that outcome, that those gaps, hasn't happened in Massachusetts or, I would argue, pretty much anywhere else. And it's only when we have a mobilization around making that happen that people are going to figure out how to solve that problem, including changing the curriculum in K-8 to or whatever else is required. I think there's a community component. I think you've got to get parents and community leaders involved. I think you've got to show people across the state, here are the gaps. Here's white kids in your district. Here's kids of color in your district. And get people talking about it. Right now, I'm going to tell you, Educators understand that those gaps are there. The public doesn't. They really don't know. And I think part of tough love in this case is to put the data on a board in front of community leaders and say, here's how your kids are doing, and here's how white kids are doing, and how Asian kids are doing. What are you going to do about it? I had a, a friend, an educator, a white woman who was an assistant superintendent in a, in a, in a big city district, who had gotten run out of town in her previous district, literally, because she stood up at a community meeting and she said to a group of black folks and Hispanic folks in the room, she said, given the results in this district and how your kids are doing, she used the wrong term. She said, I don't know why you people are not out in the streets. Now, I'm not going to advocate for use of that term from a from a white school administrator, but I'm going to tell you the, 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 the sentiment is absolutely online. The community has to decide that this is unacceptable. They have to know what the gap is, they have to have a target in their minds, and they have to hold their schools accountable. That hasn't happened. So it's, it's, it's a, it, there's a range of issues, but a, a mobilized community and school system can close those gaps. I'm convinced of it. just haven't proven it yet. Well, I'm just going to have a little plug for uh, an episode in the first season of Extraordinary Districts on okay. Lexington, Massachusetts, which did close the gap. It closed okay. the proficiency gap at the high school level, um, and it has narrow gaps at the elementary uh, and middle school uh, There's another level. school in Massachusetts, Brockton High School, which also, Brockton went from worst to first in ELA with, with kids in for growth, whom English yeah. was not the first language um, in ELA they went to the top of the distribution under the leadership of a, of a principal who decided that that had to happen. Uh, yes. Unfortunately, and this gets, to, gets back to, to Valley Stream 30, actually, I don't know how long those survive past the individual leaders. Oh, yes. And we need to have systems in place <laughs> that last longer than individual leaders. And that's, um, that's, w that's part of what I think Nick Nicholas Sterling is trying to build. I hope he stays there forever and ever, but he's, he's not a young man, I'll just say. 
Um, and so at some point, he will retire. Yeah. And the question will be, can this work live past him? Um, as you said, Josh, he didn't take over a dysfunctional system. You know, I, I have great hope that he has built the systems that will outlast him and outlast any of the other um, uh, people who are currently there. But without that deep belief, you know, I, I think, Jeff, you and I keep coming back to belief. It's not that belief, it's not like um, this is, you know, Peter Pan and you clap your hands and you believe in uh, Tinkerbell. That's not the point. It's that the belief gives you the energy and the, and the sense of um, purpose to do the work. The work is really hard. It's hard to educate every kid. Socrates had a hard time with his hand-picked little group of students who were all sons of aristocrats, right? It's hard to educate all kids. That's why you need to really have some serious systems and thought through. Uh, but once you know that there's nothing wrong with these kids, that they can, in fact, achieve at the highest standards, at that point it becomes a question of ethics and morality about whether you organize yourselves to teach them. So that step of getting people to believe that the kids can do it is a big step to take because once they take that step and they come to understand that it's true, these kids can learn at the highest levels, at that point people have to look in the mirror every day and decide whether they're doing what's necessary to get them there. Well, and once they're committed, then it's an engineering problem, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's an engineering problem. A solvable It's a solvable. Problem. And then you start talking about the which programs. Which which program is the most effective? If this isn't the most effective, then let's move the let's move it out. Absolutely. Let's, let's get it. that's why I I'm less concerned that they adopted journeys. I, I'm not familiar with journeys the way you are. I'm less concerned about it because they have the belief system. They'll figure it out. It's not, it's, not, it's not doing what they really need to do, That's right. and they'll figure it out, and they'll supplement. They'll, they'll do what they need to do. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's not a great way. You know, like that's a backwards engineering solution. You're better off with a, you know, the, the best program. And the belief. At the, the beginning. <laughs> and the belief. But if you've got the belief, you'll, you'll get there. The target, the belief, and then the backward engineering. Right. Exactly. And what's interesting is I think that um, Valley Stream District 30 as an entity would believe very much in what you offer, Natalie, in the sense that they've made such a commitment to, in, 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 in the absence of a robust curriculum that was self-evident to choose, they have created a system wherein teachers have autonomy and, uh, and accountability, and the school is permitted to bring in experiences for children, have experiences, get on buses, and go out for experiences. So I think uh, I, I don't see there to be any sort of tension between those two ideas. I just think that they figured out a while ago what's the best way we can do that in the absence of, of a program. The, the reality is that if there were a program, uh, most likely one of the major publishers would have, right, they would have perfected it and marketed it. We could rely less on teacher um, grit and ingenuity, and we could, you know, education would be so much easier, but that's, that's not it. The belief system is, is what stitches together all of those systems, Karen, that you talk about. And that when, when, when the work gets really challenging and really difficult, that's what helps put a little air under the folks' wings to carry on with the work. 
I, I just would say that I, I have been in schools and talked to teachers whose beliefs were affected by what they were teaching and what they saw their students could do with the material they were teaching. Absolutely. So, for example, a second-grade teacher, this was out in Reno, Nevada, who had a struggling uh, reader in her second-grade class and was trying out one of the new content-focused elementary curricula. And she was giving this kid, you know, a test, testing his individual reading level. He was at the low end of second grade. She saw in the testing kit there was a text about westward expansion. They, the class had just finished a two-week unit on westward expansion. But this text was at the fourth grade level. This was a struggling second grade student. Just out of curiosity and because she was somewhat skeptical about this curriculum, she gave the kid this fourth grade text, and he read it with 100% comprehension and 98% accuracy. And I would say that changed her beliefs about what this kid could do. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great story. It is. That's a great story. It's also how you can perpetuate the, the, the change beyond the current leader. Because as teachers are working with great curricula and they see the results because the leader put something in place to sort of get everybody focused on getting results, and then the teacher gets results with a curriculum and sees what's possible, at that point that teacher becomes a believer, and it's not someone imposing the belief, it becomes internalized. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've kind of strayed from, from the outline that I had, and I love that. We just had a great conversation, so thank you so much. This wraps up season two of Extraordinary Districts. If you haven't listened to the other episodes, I hope you'll go back and listen. In addition to the episode on Valley Stream 30 and this panel discussion, season two features an episode on Lane, Oklahoma and Seaford, Delaware, and panel discussions on them as well, bringing together expert educators and researchers to talk about them. In addition, we had a fabulous kickoff discussion a couple weeks ago uh, that will be released as our first episode. Uh, it was held in Chicago before a live audience at an event co-hosted by the Education Trust and the University of Illinois Chicago's Center for Urban Education Leadership and its EDD program in Urban Education Leadership. It featured scholars Ronald Ferguson and Nell Duke and Chicago Public Schools CEO Janice Jackson, and they all discussed district improvement. If you think this is a valuable podcast, I hope you will consider donating to the Education Trust so that we can continue to find and learn from extraordinary school districts. Please subscribe so that you'll receive notice of any future episodes. And go to our website for lots of information about the districts we profile, the guests we have on our panels, and lots more. Thank you to our sound engineer, Mike Patillo, who also composed our music, and Tonal Park, where we recorded this episode. And of course, thank you to Overdeck Family Foundation for making possible this season of Extraordinary Districts. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time. <laughs>